Hi there! You're about to listen to a vintage episode of the Under the Microscope podcast. While the content is still as relevant and as interesting as when it was recorded, our webpage has changed. You can now find us at thesciencetalk.com slash real-scientist-nano. Welcome to Under the Microscope. This series is brought to you by the Real Scientists Nano team. Our goal is to provide a platform where scientists can communicate their work and interact with the public. With that in mind, every week we introduce you to a scientist working in the field of materials and nanoscience who would be curating the RealSci underscore nano Twitter account. everyone. Today we have with us Benjamin Eggleton, who is a professor and director of Sydney Nano at the University of Sydney. Hi Benjamin, how are you doing? I am very good. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm very, very good and excited to take a deep dive with you in your research uh, and knowing a bit more about the scientist in you and your scientific journey. Um, so let's begin by understanding your your uh, scientific journey so far. So how did you end up in your current research field? Yeah, so my current research field deals with photonics, which is really a uh, more technological discipline that deals with fiber optics and lasers. But initially, I studied physics, and I was much more interested in astronomy and spent many summers um, up in the desert working on the installation of a new telescope. Mm -hmm. And my honours project, my master's project, was on developing fibre optic technology to enhance this telescope, to see stars. Mm -hmm. And I guess it's fair to say that through that project, I like to say that I saw the light. And I think I realised at a very early age that I was more interested in science and technology than I was interested in just pure physics for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of pivoted from that expertise, that focus on optics for astronomy to really optical technology. And that was at a time when in Australia we were starting to build the first fibre optic communication systems between the major cities. So there was a lot of investment in research and fibre optics. And so my PhD was on that topic. Mm -hmm. And I think that really draw, drew me into that field and I've been really on that topic for the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's that's really interesting that you started with with uh, being interested in astronomy and then moved. Uh, what did you say? It it showed you the light. What what was the? That's, I saw I saw the light. Yes, that's a bit of a biblical reference there, but you get my idea. But yeah, so I think um, the pace of astronomy just wasn't fast enough. I think, <laughs> and I love astronomy, and I still love astronomy, mm -hmm. but I think I was more interested in working in an area that is at the interface of science and industry and technology mm -hmm. and particularly because as i mentioned fiber optics were now being deployed around the world um it was so important that um we had good physicists there were so many interesting problems to solve mm -hmm. at the time and so that really uh, was the beginning and at the end of my phd i was very fortunate to go to bell labs in the us which was the most prestigious research organization in that whole area. And I spent seven years there. So 
Mm -hmm. um, I was involved in really the development of many of the high-speed communications networks around the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That sounds really, really um, intruding, uh, honestly. So, if I mean, you already did speak about it a little bit, but um, I'm going to ask you again. So, where does, where and how does your current research fall in this big picture of materials or nanoscience in this big puzzle? Where does it fit? Yeah, so if we pick up on what I focused on early on in my career, we were trying to build components um, that allowed for vast amounts of data to be sent through fiber optic cables, the backbone of the internet. Mm -hmm. And what we realized about 15 years ago is that we also needed to build components that allowed us to process information using light. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that was to leverage um, integrated technology, the same integration that's used in electronics, mm -hmm. to build what we call photonic chip technology. So I started to develop about 15 years ago a photonic chip. Mm -hmm. And a photonic chip is essentially a thumbnail-sized integrated circuit. looks like an electronic circuit. But in fact, if you put it under a microscope, there are no electrons it essentially relies on um, light-based processing, mm -hmm. and it has a real breathtaking signal processing capability. So it allows you to perform very advanced processing of information at very high bandwidths. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge for that particular uh, technological co uh, component is that you need to be able to manipulate the chip at the nanoscale. And mm -hmm. so we use um, the same nanotechnology that is used by material scientists uh, to manufacture these uh, integrated circuits that control light at the nanoscale. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. That's okay. That's, I think that gives me a bit of an idea of what the bigger picture and how does it fit. And it does sound to me that you do a lot of interesting experiments or research projects you have done also in the past uh, uh, referring to your scientific journey so far and you continue to be involved in some really interesting research projects um, if you have to pick one i know it is a very difficult uh, it's very difficult to pick one favorite research project uh, but if if you had to pick one uh, that you're most proud of or the most most fun or exciting one could you pick one research project and explain it to us in simple words in the section we call In Other Words? Yeah, so what we discovered in my group about 10 years ago is that when we inject light waves onto these little components, these chips, mm -hmm. under certain conditions, the light waves somehow manage to generate a sound wave. Mm -hmm a sound wave that the light then scatters off. Now, we stumbled into this interesting regime where we have light waves and sound waves um, interacting with each other. And this is kind of fascinating because if you think about light, we all remember from high school the speed of light. Einstein talked about the speed of light three times 10 to the 8 meters per second. Mm -hmm. And we think about sound, the speed of sound. We're also familiar with the speed of sound because we know the sound barrier and we're familiar with thunder and lightning. So when we see a lightning storm, we know that we see the lightning and then we hear the thunder, three mm -hmm. seconds, five seconds. And of course, we hear the thunder because the sound is propagating very slowly. Right. And so this idea that we can couple and interact light waves with sound waves is somehow really intriguing 
and has opened up some interest in fundamental science that we've been pursuing for the last 10 years. Probably the most impressive result that we've published is the idea that we can store information in the sound wave. And so we solved an important problem because for many years, scientists have been trying to store information in light waves simply by slowing the light wave down. If you can slow light down, you can create a buffer for light. But it turns out it's really difficult to do that at room temperature, almost impossible to slow light down. Mm -hmm. But of course, as I said, the speed of sound is so much slower than the speed of light. In fact, it's 100,000 times slower. And so if we can simply transfer the information from the light wave into the sound wave, mm -hmm. it's like you're driving along a freeway at 100 miles an hour. Rather than slowing down, you just hand the information to a turtle that's walking along at a snail's pace. Mm -hmm. And so we did that in the lab. And so we demonstrated a complete new concept for memory on a chip that uses light and sound and this intriguing idea that thunder and lightning you know, that we all relate to. In fact, when the journalists put this story out in the newspaper associated with one of our nature papers, um, he used this idea of um, lightning-inducing thunder, or thunder associated with lightning, so everyone could relate to the speed of sound and the speed of light. So the physics is very complicated, but everyone understands the thunder and the lightning, that mm -hmm. we hear the thunder after we see the lightning. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really nice example, and we're doing this uh, at length scales that are so small that we actually have to take into account the nanoscopic features of these structures. We have to simulate electromagnetic waves at the nanoscale. So this is a completely new regime of light and sound. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's, it, it's really cool. And as you pointed out correctly, everyone, people might not understand the physics behind it, but everyone understands the thunderstorm because this is something that we have seen as a child as well that, oh, first you see the light and a few, like you can estimate how far the lightning was uh, by like one, two, three, and then I hear the yeah. sound. Yeah. Um, so people can relate to it. So, it's easy to understand. And, that, and most people haven't really thought about it, but if you actually do the calculation in your head, you realize there's sort of roughly speaking a 100,000 times difference between the speed of light and the speed of sound. Mm -hmm. Just a good thing to remember. That's yeah. just a kind of rough number, 100,000 times different. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's quite uh, easy to understand and easy to remember as well. Uh, and that I can understand completely why you chose this as the project that you're most proud of. Or one of the most, let me, let me say it properly, yeah. one yeah. of the most proud yeah. of. Uh, ones. That's that's really cool. Um, Benjamin, let's move a bit away from the research outside the lab towards the other aspects of, uh, of a researcher, which is uh, teaching, um, imparting knowledge to the next generations and all. And speaking of which, um, do you teach? And if you do, which, which are the courses uh, that you would like to mention? Yes, I teach. I've been in a role um, that is like a dean position, but I teach um, because I enjoy teaching and I teach a second year class in advanced optics mm -hmm. and I teach a fourth year graduate level course in nonlinear optics and photonic structures. So I've just been marking exams this week mm -hmm. um, using Canvas. So we just had our exams and they were done at home using Canvas and I've been working out how to mark exams and that's going to be 
<clears throat> finished up tomorrow. So yes, I really enjoy teaching. Mm -hmm. Okay. <clears throat> and do you have, uh, speaking of exams, I do have a question regarding the kind of exams. So in Germany, we have both, there are the written exams and then there are the oral exams where there would be like two professors <coughs> uh, present and it's more of a, so is that also a trend in, in, uh, in Australia? We haven't really gone the way of the oral exams. Um, even for PhD thesis, we still rely on traditional um, examination uh, of the thesis itself. Yeah, I know. And I think they're only recently starting to allow for oral defence. But it's very old school. And I think that sort of legacy of Australia just feeling like um, we, I think it's just an old approach. But it's, it's a very inefficient approach because we need to send this out we need to find three examiners from all over the world we need to send them the thesis we need to wait for them to review it so <clears throat> i certainly like the oral defense that is pursued in most of the northern hemisphere mm -hmm. okay all right you mentioned that the phd exams are also written so are we talking about the phd defense or the exams that the phd students have to give over the course of the phd work no, I'm just referring to the defence. So we don't, our graduate students have to do coursework, but they don't really, typically they don't have to do the exams. I'm really referring to the fact when you finish your PhD mm -hmm. in the US, you would have a thesis defence and that would be the end of the story. Yeah. But in Australia, you have to write up a thesis and it's usually quite a polished, you know, 200 pages. It could take three to six months. Right. And then they get sent out to three examiners. And right. I've been, you know, in this business for 20 years. So you run out of people to send it to. Right. And then they are expected to review it like they review a long paper. Oh, okay. Yes. And some most of the time it, it takes, you know, six weeks. But every once in a while you'll have a rogue examiner who keeps on forgetting. I mean, I had a student 10 years ago and the examiner – changed jobs and then he lost the thesis and then we kept on sending it back to him and then he lost it again and then he kept on coming up with excuses and then after about five months i remember finding this fax that was his report and i picked up the fax and i looked at it thinking where's his report and i couldn't see it and then i noticed in the top left hand corner he had written as is aha uh -huh. i know that was his report i really wasn't that impressed so um <laughs> That's painful. Yeah, I, I, I don't buy yeah. the fact that the report or the, the thesis was lost. I, 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 it can happen once, but not twice yeah. other than that. That's right. Um, that's right. Okay, that's that's really interesting. Um, so let's let's move back to your research experience from teaching now. And I hope your experience has been wonderful and will continue to be wonderful in the future as well. However, if you had three wishes to improve your research experience, what would you ask for? And I'm not promising anything here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I have a lot of fun in my current role, and it's you know a role that involves me speaking to people almost all day long mm -hmm. and enabling new opportunities and bringing my technical strategic perspective to students and academics in my group and colleagues and partners and stakeholders. I guess to some extent I miss being hands-on in the lab, but I feel like I am still very hands-on because I've got students, I'm writing papers, and I'm still deeply um, involved in the research and reading the literature. So I guess I could spend, you know, the days when I used to spend time in the lab um, 
we're kind of long gone, but I still got a big lab. I think, you know, the challenge of getting more students into science um, is, I think, a common problem that we have here, I think, everywhere. So wanting to see more dynamic, brilliant students who are interested in working in science and technology, mm -hmm. I think is something I really would be pleased to see. And I guess I think always the university could just become less bureaucratic. <laughs> and I think we spend a lot of time as academics uh, fighting with HR and finance over really silly procedures and policies that are clearly put in place because universities are risk averse and we just want to get on with it and we know what we're doing but there's just these layers and layers of bureaucracy and mm -hmm. too clumsy um, so I wish they would just streamline and I think it's fair to say the university is really working on that but it's got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so more time in the lab. Uh, speaking of which, when was the last time you went to the lab, like hands-on, did an experiment? Uh, yeah, okay. So I would estimate doing an experiment. See, that's, I mean, it depends what you mean by doing an experiment. Going into the lab, I would say going into the lab and using my hands to control the mirror. That's the metric in optics. It's yeah. adjusting the mirror. That was probably 13 years ago. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Okay. I know. You have to do it again, even if to mess I know. with the, the already aligned optics, uh, the optical hands. Yeah, you do it. I, I used to come in on the weekend with my honor students, and we, we'd kind of get a laser to mode lock or align some optics experiment. Mm -hmm. You never lose it. You never lose that neck. No. So, it's like no, I don't, a bike I just, for swimming, right? You it don't is. get it. It is. It's part of you now. I, see, I think, please, I don't think I, I think I'm better off in what I do now, which is really the orchestra, you know, I'm the conductor of the orchestra. Oh, really? I think okay. I like to think of it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, curate, I mean, you are the director. You do have to make sure that everyone's playing the right instrument and they're playing in harmony. That is true. You're right. It's the, the you're an, uh, you're the conductor of an uh, of an orchestra. That's a, that's a really nice way of uh, putting what you actually do. I do remember that where the, the institute where I did my PhD, there we we had a new director coming in, and that's when we realized there is this tradition that the old director hands the uh, the, the the wand or whatever it's called to the new director as like, okay, now you are in charge, you are the conductor of the of the orchestra. Um, yeah, that, I think that's- Yeah, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, wonderful. Um, so so I, I do hope that your wishes do come true and you already pointed out that the university is working on reducing the bureaucracy. Uh, hopefully it will happen soon. Uh, and speaking of future, uh, what are you most looking forward to in the next three months? Seeing students back on campus mm -hmm. um, and my colleagues, I think, would be a good sign. And getting on with research, the project that I'm actually most excited about is a large initiative that I launched on nano health. 
Okay. So really trying to establish at the university a coordinated uh, and cohesive approach to nanomedicine and nano health. Mm-hmm. And so I've been re- really uh, working across the entire university and the clinicians associated with the various hospitals that the university uh, has affiliated with. And that's exciting. And as the director of City Nano, it's a really strong platform. Um, and I'm surprised at how seriously I get taken by people from cardiovascular, from the neurological respiratory disease um, and across the whole ecosystem of health sciences where it's clear that nanotechnology can play an enormous role in addressing some of the most important health challenges we face. Um, And if we think about COVID-19 specifically, um, we know that there are huge challenges involved in developing uh, sensors that can detect the virus and doing that in uh, almost real time and how we detect antibodies and how we sense um, infections in people before we test them. So I think what I've realised and what I'm excited about, and I think many people working in nanoscience already around the world know, is that there's enormous um, potential for applying nanotechnology in healthcare um, to address diseases and many of the burdens of a society and also to grow um, industry because I think nanotechnology should be part of our ecosystem and our jobs and prosperity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that's, pretty, that's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It, it sounds really cool. And I, I, I hope to read more about it about the Nano for Health, uh, the, the project that you, you mentioned, uh, I think it's the need of the hour. I mean, we don't need to convince people here uh, about how important it is to, to look at the health aspect and how nanoscience can help with that as well. Absolutely. Um, and before we let you go, Benjamin, what we want to hear from you are is what are the challenges that are faced by the field of materials or nanoscience um, that the scientists are trying to find answers to? Like, what are the big questions that we are trying to uh, answer or the challenges? The scientific questions, I think, are interesting. Um, Oh, there's so many. If I think about within my community, some of the really big issues that we're confronting with, I think, on the one hand, we're trying to build a quantum computer. Mm -hmm. And so that's somehow one of the grand challenges that we have in our, of our generation, and um, there's some really fascinating and breathtakingly challenging material science, depending on the approach that we take, whether it's topologically protected qubits mm-hmm. or superconducting qubits. I think that's uh, an enormously challenging area. I think in the context of health science, um, as I alluded to earlier, understanding nano, what we call toxicity. Mm-hmm. Um, so we do a lot of work on nanoparticles, and uh, in general, of course, when you consider nanotechnology as a beneficial carrier of um, genome or chemotherapy or other drugs, it's also toxic. And we have to think at how the community responds to nanotechnology because in the community there's often um, a sense that nanotechnology is, is, is scary and dangerous. Mm-hmm. I think there's some challenges there. I think... Um, we are looking at Sydney Nano um, at some exciting work in catalysis and developing uh, materials that allow us to create more sustainable manufacturing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be an area that I think we can have huge impact around the world in Australia in creating a sustainable economy that's going to allow us to be carbon neutral and maybe um, address some of the most important challenges facing uh, the world in terms of climate change. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of, in terms of neurological <coughs> neurological disorders, there's huge scope for using nanotechnology um, and then at the interface of um, neuroscience um, and material science. So we're looking at the question of can we create synthetic synapses, mm-hmm. synthetic neurons, and can we actually create an artificial um, <clears throat> brain that allows us to do AI in a way that's much more um, <clears throat> reminiscent of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. And so there are some really op- open questions um, that uh, are addressed in that space. And I think there's an overarching issue with nanotechnology that whether we have prosecuted the case for nanoscience well enough and whether stakeholders, government officials, sponsors are convinced that nanotechnology has delivered or will deliver. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's a huge part of our world. I mean, nanotechnology is in every iPhone we use. It's already been used in healthcare. It's used in telecommunications. But... I still think there are many people out there who still see nanoscience and nanotechnology and science fiction and don't quite understand <clears throat> where it's up to. And I think we've got some more work to do, which I think is why what we're talking about today in this Twitter and outreach is so important that we need to communicate the importance of nanotechnology and make it sound like something that is uh, really part of the scientific landscape and has had impact, is having impact, will have impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you on that, that the nanoscience or nanoscience and technology in general, this big, it's not science fiction anymore. It's becoming reality. And the more people know about it, it's, it's, it's always good to do as much outreach as possible. Um, and thank you very much for also uh, giving us a perspective into what are the challenges that are faced by the field of nano in general, starting from toxicity, catalysis to healthcare, to, to electronics, everything, everything. Uh, this has been wonderful, Benjamin. Thank you very much for speaking with me and looking forward to having you on Real Scientist Nano. Great. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Thank you for listening. To know more about us, please visit our website realscientistsnano.org and follow us on Twitter at realsci_nano.